are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. The story opens with the words We have what you need written backwards as if viewed in a mirror Tim Carmichael who worked for a trade paper that specialised in economics And eked out a meagre salary by selling sensational and untrue articles to the tabloids Failed to sense a story in the reversed sign He thought it was a cheap publicity gag Something one seldom encounters on Park Avenue where the shop fronts are noted for their classic dignity and he was irritated he growled silently walked on then suddenly turned and came back he wasn't quite strong enough to resist the temptation to unscramble the sentence though his annoyance grew he stood before the window staring up and said to himself we have what you need yeah the sign was in prim small letters on a black painted ribbon that stretched across a narrow glass pane. Below it was one of those curved invisible glass windows. Through the window Carmichael could see an expanse of white velvet with a few objects carefully arranged there, a rusty nail, a snowshoe and a diamond tiara. It looked like a Dali decor for Cartier or Tiffany. Jewelers, Carmichael asked silently, but why what you need? He pictured millionaires miserably despondent for lack of a matched pearl necklace, heiresses weeping inconsolably because they needed a few star sapphires. The principle of luxury merchandising was to deal with the whipped cream of supply and demand. Few people needed diamonds, they merely wanted them and could afford them. Or the place might sell ginny flasks, Carmichael decided, or magic wands. Same principle as a Coney Carney though, a sucker trap. Build a watson outside and people will pay their dimes and flock in for two cents. He was dyspeptic this morning and generally disliked the world. Prospect of a scapegoat was attractive and his press card gave him a certain advantage. He opened the door and walked into the shop. It was Park Avenue alright. There were no showcases or counters. It might be an art gallery for a few good oils were displayed on the walls. An air of overpowering luxury with the bleakness of an unlived-in place struck Carmichael. Through a curtain at the back came a very tall, thin man with carefully combed white hair, a ruddy, healthy face and sharp blue eyes. He might have been 60. He wore expensive but careless tweeds which somehow jarred with the decor. Good morning, the man said with a quick glance at Carmichael's clothes. He seemed slightly surprised. May I help you? Maybe. Carmichael introduced himself and showed his press card. Oh, my name's Tally. Peter Tally. I saw your sign. Our paper is always on the lookout for possible write-ups. I've never noticed your shop before. I've been here for years, Tally said. The door opened. A florid man came in and greeted Tally cordially. Carmichael recognised the client, felt his opinion of the shop swinging rapidly upward. The florid man was a name, a big one. 
It's a bit early, Mr. Tally, he said, but I didn't want to delay. Have you had time to get what I needed? Oh yes, I have it. One moment. Tally hurried through the draperies and returned with a small, neatly wrapped parcel, which he gave to the florid man. The latter forked over a cheque. Carmichael caught a glimpse of the amount and gulped, and departed. His town car was at the curb outside. Carmichael moved towards the door, where he could watch. The florid man seemed anxious. His chauffeur waited stolidly as the parcel was unwrapped with hurried fingers. I'm not sure I'd want publicity, Mr. Carmichael, Tally said. I have a select clientele, carefully chosen. Then perhaps our weekly economic bulletins might interest you. Tally tried not to laugh. Oh, I don't think so. It really isn't my line. The florid man had finally unwrapped a parcel and taken out an egg. As far as Carmichael could see from his post near the door, it was merely an ordinary egg. But its possessor regarded it almost with awe. Had Earth's last hen died ten years before, the man could have been no more pleased. Something like deep relief showed on the florid tanned face. He said something to the chauffeur, and the car rolled smoothly forward and was gone. Are you in the dairy business? Carmichael asked abruptly. No. Do you mind telling me what your business is? I'm afraid I do rather, Tally said. Carmichael was beginning to scent a story. Of course I could find out through the Better Business Bureau. You couldn't, Tally said. No? They might be interested in knowing why an egg is worth $5,000 to one of your customers. Tally said, My clientele is so small, I must charge high fees. You know that a Chinese Mandarin has been known to pay thousands of tails for eggs of proved antiquity. That guy wasn't a Chinese Mandarin, Carmichael said. Oh well, as I say, I don't welcome publicity, Tally replied. I think you do. I was in the advertising game for a while. Spelling your sign backwards is an obvious baited hook. Then you're no psychologist, Tally said. It's just that I can afford to indulge my whims. For five years I looked at that window every day and read the sign backwards from inside my shop. It annoyed me. You know how a word will begin to look funny if you keep staring at it? Any word. It turns into something in no human tongue. Well... I discovered I was getting a neurosis about that sign. It makes no sense backward, but I kept finding myself trying to read sense into it. When I started to say Dean, Oi, Tao, Eva, U to myself and looking for philological derivations, I called in a sign painter. People who are interested enough still drop in. Not many, Carmichael said shrewdly. This is Park Avenue, and you've got the place fixed up too expensively. Nobody in the low income brackets or the middle brackets would come in here, so you run an upper bracket business. Well, Telly said, yes I do. And you won't tell me what it is, replied Carmichael. I'd rather not. I can find out, you know. It might be dope, pornography, high class fencing. Very likely, Mr. Tally said smoothly. I buy stolen jewels, conceal them in eggs and sell them on to my customers. Or perhaps that egg was loaded with microscopic French postcards. Good morning, Mr. Carmichael. Good morning, Carmichael said, and went out. He was overdue at the office, but annoyance was the stronger motivation. He played sleuth for a while, keeping an eye on Tally's shop, and the results were thoroughly satisfactory to a certain extent. He learned everything but why. Late in the afternoon, he sought out Mr. Tally again. Wait a minute, he said, at sight of the proprietor's discouraged face. For all you know, I might be a customer. Tally laughed. Well, why not? Carmichael compressed his lips. How do you know the size of my bank account? 
Or maybe you've got a restricted clientele? Tally replied, no, but Carmichael said quickly, I've been doing some investigating. I've been noticing your customers, in fact, following them and finding out what they buy from you. Tally's face changed. Indeed? Indeed. They're all in a hurry to unwrap their little bundles, so that gave me a chance to find out. I missed a few, but I saw enough to apply a couple of rules of logic, Mr. Tally. Item. Your customers don't know what they're buying from you. It's a sort of grab bag. A couple of times they were plenty surprised. The man who opened his parcel and found an old newspaper clipping. What about the sunglasses and the revolver? Probably illegal, by the way. No license. And the diamond? It must have been paste. It was so big. Hmm, Mr. Tally said. I'm no smart apple, but I can smell a screwy setup, said Carmichael. Most of your clients are big shots, in one way or another. And why didn't any of them pay you? Like the first man, the guy who came in when I was here this morning. It's chiefly a credit business, Tally said. I've my ethics. I have to, for my own conscience. It's responsibility. You see, I sell my goods with a guarantee. Payment is made only if the product proves satisfactory. So, an egg, sunglasses, a pair of asbestos gloves, a newspaper clipping, a gun, and a diamond. How do you take inventory? Tally said nothing. Carmichael grinned. You've an errand boy. You send him out and he comes back with bundles. Maybe he goes to a grocery on Madison and buys an egg. Or a pawn shop on Six for a revolver. Oh well, anyhow, I told you I'd find out what your business is. And have you? Tally asked. We have what you need, Carmichael said. But how do you know? You're jumping to conclusions, said Tally. Carmichael answered. Listen, Mr. Tally, I'm fed up to the eyebrows and way beyond on queer little shops that sell peculiar things. I know too much about them. I've written about them. A guy walks along the streets and sees a funny sort of store and the proprietor won't serve him. He sells only to pixies. Or else he does sell them a magic charm with a double edge. Well, hmm, Tally said. Hmm, as much as you like, but you can't get away from logic. Either you've got a sound, sensible racketeer or else it's one of those funny magic shop setups, and I don't believe that, for it isn't logical. Why not, said Tally. Because of economics, Carmichael said flatly. Grant the idea that you've got certain mysterious powers. Let's say you can make telepathic gadgets. Alright, why the devil would you start a business so you could sell the gadgets, so you could make more money so you could live? You'd simply put on one of your gadgets, read the stockbroker's mind, and buy the right stocks. That's the intrinsic fallacy of these crazy shop things. If you've got enough stuff on the ball to be able to stock and run such a shop, you wouldn't need the business in the first place. Why go round Robin Hood's barn? Tally said nothing. Carmichael smiled crookedly. I often wonder what the vintners buy one half of so precious as the stuff they sell, he quoted. Well, what do you buy? I know what you sell, eggs and sunglasses. You're an inquisitive man, Mr. Carmichael, Tally murmured. Has it ever occurred to you that this is none of your business? I may be a customer, Carmichael repeated. How about that? Tally's cool blue eyes were intent. A new light dawned in them. Tally pursed his lips and scowled. I hadn't thought of that, he admitted. You might be, under the circumstances. Will you excuse me for a moment? Sure, Carmichael said. Tally went through the curtains. Outside, traffic drifted idly along park. As the sun slid down beyond the Hudson, 
The street lay in a blue shadow that crept imperceptibly up the barricades of the buildings. Carmichael stared at the sign, we have what you need, and smiled. In a back room, Tally put his eye to a binocular plate and moved a calibrated dial. He did this several times. Then, biting his lip, for he was a gentleman, he called his errand boy and gave him directions. After that, he returned to Carmichael. You're a customer, he said, under certain conditions. The condition of my bank account, you mean, said Carmichael. No, Tally said. I'll give you reduced rates. Understand one thing. I really do have what you need. You don't know what you need, but I know. And as it happens, well, I'll sell you what you need for, let's say, $5. Carmichael reached for his wallet. Tally held up a hand. Pay me after you're satisfied, and the money's the nominal part of the fee. There's another part. If you're satisfied, I want you to promise that you'll never come near this shop again and never mention it to anyone. I see, Carmichael said slowly. His theories had changed slightly. Tally continued. It won't be long before... Ah, here he is now. A buzzing from the back indicated the return of the errand boy. Tally said, excuse me, and vanished. Soon he returned with a neatly wrapped parcel, which he thrust into Carmichael's hands. Keep this on your person, Tally said. Carmichael nodded, pocketed the parcel and went out. Feeling affluent, he held a taxi and went to a cocktail bar he knew. There in the dim light of a booth, he unwrapped a bundle. Protection money, he decided. Tally was paying him off to keep his mouth shut about the racket, whatever it was. Okay, live and let live, how much would it be? 10,000? 50,000? How big was the racket? He opened an oblong cardboard box. Within, nesting upon tissue paper, was a pair of shears, the blades protected by a sheath of folded, glued cardboard. Carmichael said something softly. He drank his highball and ordered another, but left it untasted. Glancing at his wristwatch, he decided that the Park Avenue shop would be closed by now, and Mr. Peter Talley gone. He unsheathed the blades and snipped experimentally at the air. Nothing happened. Slightly crimson around the cheekbones, Carmichael reholstered the shears and dropped them into the side pocket of his topcoat. Quite a gag. He decided to call on Peter Talley tomorrow. Meanwhile, what? He remembered he had a dinner date with one of the girls at the office and hastily paid his bill and left. The streets were darkening, and a cold wind blew southward from the park. Carmichael wound his scarf tighter around his throat and made gestures towards passing taxis. He was considerably annoyed. Half an hour later, a thin man with sad eyes, Jerry Wirth, one of the copywriters from his office, greeted him at the bar where Carmichael was killing time. Waiting for Betsy, Wirth said, nodding towards the restaurant annex. She sent me to tell you she couldn't make it. A rush deadline, apologies and stuff. Where were you today? Things got gummed up a bit. Have a drink with me. They worked on a rye. Carmichael was already slightly stiff. The dull crimson around his cheekbones had deepened and his frown had become set. What you need, he remarked. Double crossing little. Huh? Where said? Nothing. Drink up. I've just decided to get a guy in trouble if I can. You almost got yourself in trouble today, Jerry said. Eggs, sunglasses, said Carmichael, and ordered another round. Every time he felt the weight of the shears in his pocket, he found his lips moving. 
Five shots later, Weir said plaintively, I don't mind doing good deeds, but I do like to mention them, and you won't let me. All I want is a little gratitude. All right, mention them, Carmichael said. Brag your head off, who cares? Wirth showed satisfaction. That or analysis, it was that. You went at the office today, but I caught it. I checked with our records, and you had trans steel all wrong. If I hadn't altered the figures, it would have gone down to the printer. What? said Carmichael. The trans steel, they... Oh, you fool, Carmichael groaned. I know it didn't check with the office figures. I meant to put in a notice to have them changed. I got my dope from the source. Why don't you mind your own business? Worth blinked. I was trying to help. It would have been good for a five buck raise, Carmichael said. After all the research you did to uncover the real dope. Listen, has the stuff gone to bed yet? I don't know, maybe not. Croft was still checking the copy. Okay, Carmichael said. Next time. He jerked at his scarf, jumped off the stool and headed for the door, trailed by the protesting Wirth. Ten minutes later he was at the office listening to Croft's bland explanation that the copy had already been dispatched to the printer. Does it matter? Incidentally, where were you today? said Jerry. Dancing on the rainbow, Carmichael snapped and departed. He had switched over from rye to whiskey sours and the cold night air naturally didn't sober him. Swaying slightly, watching the sidewalk move a little as he blinked at it, he stood on the curb and pondered. I'm sorry, Tim, Wirth said. It's too late now, though. There won't be any trouble. You've got a right to go by our office records. Stop me now, Carmichael said. He was angry and drunk. On impulse, he got another taxi and sped to the printers, still trailing a somewhat confused Jerry Wirth. There was a rhythmic thunder in the building. The swift movement of the taxi had given Carmichael a slight nausea. His head ached and alcohol was in solution in his blood. The hot, inky air was unpleasant. The great linotypes thumped and growled. Men were moving about. It was all slightly nightmarish and Carmichael doggedly hunched his shoulders and lurched on until something jerked him back and began to strangle him. Wirth started yelling. His face showed drunken terror. He made ineffectual gestures. But this was all part of the nightmare. Carmichael saw what had happened. The ends of his scarf had caught in the moving gears somewhere, and he was being drawn inexorably into meshing metal cogs. Men were running. The clanking, thumping, rolling sounds were deafening. He pulled at the scarf. Where screamed, Knife! Cut it! The warping of relative values that intoxication gives saved Carmichael. Sober, he would have been helpless with panic. As it was, each thought was hard to capture, but clear and lucid when he finally got it. He remembered the shears, and he put his hand in his pocket. The blade slipped out of their cardboard sheath, and he snipped through the scarf with fumbling, hasty movements. The white silk disappeared. Carmichael fingered the ragged edge at his throat and smiled stiffly. Mr. Peter Talley had been hoping that Carmichael would not come back. The probability lines had shown two possible variants, in one, all was well, in the other. Carmichael walked into the shop the next morning and held out a five dollar bill. Tally took it. Thank you, Tally said, but you could have mailed me a check. I could have, only that wouldn't have told me what I wanted to know. No, Tally said and sighed, you've decided haven't you? Do you blame me, Carmichael said? Last night, do you know what happened? Yes, said Tally. How? I might as well tell you, Tally said. You'd find out anyway. That's certain anyhow. 
Carmichael sat down, lit a cigarette and nodded. Logic. You couldn't have arranged that little accident by any manner of means. Betty Hogue decided to break our date early yesterday morning, before I saw you. That was the beginning of the chain of incidents that led up to the accident. Ergo, you must have known what was going to happen. I did know, said Tally. Prescience, said Carmichael. Mechanical. I saw that you would be crushed in the machine, said Tally. Which implies an alterable future, said Carmichael. Certainly, Tally said, his shoulders slumping. There are innumerable possible variants to the future, different lines of probability, all depending on the outcome of various crises as they arise. I happen to be skilled in certain branches of electronics. Some years ago, almost by accident, I stumbled on the principle of seeing the future. How? asked Carmichael. Chiefly, it involves a personal focus on the individual. The moment you enter this place, he gestured, you're in the beam of my scanner. In my back room, I have the machine itself. By turning a calibrated dial, I check the possible futures. Sometimes there are many, sometimes only a few, as though at times certain stations weren't broadcasting. I look into my scanner and see what you need and supply. Carmichael let smoke drift from his nostrils. He watched the blue coils through narrowed eyes. You follow a man's whole life in triplicate or quadruplicate or whatever? No, Tally said. I've got my device focused so it's sensitive to crisis curves. When those occur, I follow them farther and see what probability paths involve the man's safe and happy survival. The sunglasses, the egg and the gloves, said Carmichael. Tally said, Mr. Smith is one of my regular clients. Whenever he passes a crisis successfully with my aid, he comes back for another checkup. I locate his next crisis and supply him with what he needs to meet it. I gave him the asbestos gloves. In about a month, the situation will arise where he must, under the circumstances, move a red-hot bar of metal. He's an artist. I see, said Carmichael. So it isn't always saving a man's life. Of course not, Tally said. Life isn't the only vital factor. An apparently minor crisis may lead to, well, a divorce, a neurosis, a wrong decision, and the loss of hundreds of lives indirectly. I ensure life, health and happiness. You're an altruist. Only why doesn't the world storm your doors? Why limit your trade to a few? Said Carmichael. I haven't got the time or the equipment, said Tally. More machines could be built? Said Carmichael. Well, Tally said, most of my customers are wealthy. I must live. You could read tomorrow's stock market reports if you wanted, though, Carmichael said. We get back to that old question. If a guy has miraculous powers, why is he satisfied to run a hole-in-the-wall store? Tally replied, Economic reasons. I'm adverse to gambling. It wouldn't be gambling, Carmichael pointed out. I often wonder what the vintners buy. Just what do you get out of this? Satisfaction, Tally said. Call it that. But Carmichael wasn't satisfied. His mind veered from the question and turned to the possibilities. Insurance, eh? Life, health and happiness. What about me? Won't there be another crisis in my life sometime, said Carmichael. Probably. Not necessarily one involving personal danger, said Tally. Then I'm a permanent customer, said Carmichael. I'm not trying to shake you down. I'll pay. I'll pay plenty. I'm not rich, but I know exactly what a service like this would be worth to me, Tally replied. It couldn't be... 
Oh, come off it, interrupted Carmichael. I'm not a blackmailer or anything. I'm not threatening you with publicity, if that's what you're afraid of. I'm an ordinary guy, not a melodramatic villain. Do I look dangerous? What are you afraid of? You're an ordinary guy, yes, Tally admitted. Only... Why not, Carmichael argued. I won't bother you. I passed one crisis successfully with your help. There'll be another one due sometime. Give me what I need for that. Charge me anything you like. I'll get the dose somehow, borrow it if necessary. I won't disturb you at all. All I ask is that you let me come in whenever I've passed a crisis and get ammunition for the next one. What's wrong with that? Nothing, Tally said soberly. Well then, I'm an ordinary guy. There's a girl. It's Betsy Hogue. I want to marry her, settle down somewhere in the country, raise kids and have security. There's nothing wrong with that either, is there? Tally said, it was too late the moment you entered this shop today. Carmichael looked up. Why? he asked sharply. A buzzer rang in the back. Tally went through the curtains and came back almost immediately with a wrapped parcel. He gave it to Carmichael. Carmichael smiled. Thanks, he said. Thanks a lot. Do you have any idea when my next crisis will come? In a week, said Tally. Mind if I... Carmichael was unwrapping the package. He took out a pair of plastic-soled shoes and looked at Tally bewildered. Like that, eh? I'll need shoes. Yes, said Tally. I suppose... Carmichael hesitated. I guess you wouldn't tell me why. No, I won't do that. But be sure to wear them whenever you go out. Don't worry about that, and I'll mail you a cheque. May take me a few days to scrape up the dough, but I'll do it. How much? Five hundred dollars, said Tally. I'll mail a cheque today, said Carmichael. I prefer not to accept a fee until the client has been satisfied, Tally said. He had grown more reserved, his blue eyes cool and withdrawn. Suit yourself, Carmichael said. I'm going out to celebrate. You don't drink? I can't leave the shop, said Tally. Well, goodbye, and thanks again. I won't be any trouble to you, you know. I promise that. He turned away. Looking after him, Tally smiled a wry, unhappy smile. He didn't answer Carmichael's goodbye. Not then. When the door had closed behind him, Tally turned to the back of the shop and went through the door where the scanner was. The lapse of ten years can cover a multitude of changes. A man with the possibility of tremendous power, almost within his grasp, can alter. In that time, from a man who will not reach for it, to a man who will, and moral values be damned. The change did not come quickly to Carmichael. It speaks well for his integrity that it took ten years to work such an alteration in all that he had been taught. On the day he first went into Tally's shop, there was a little evil in him, but the temptation grew stronger week by week, visit by visit. Tally, for reasons of his own, was content to sit idly by, waiting for customers, smothering the inconceivable potentialities of his machine under a blanket of trivial functions. But Carmichael was not content. It took him ten years to reach the day, but the day came at last. Tally sat in the inner room, his back to the door. He was slumped low in an ancient rocker, facing the machine. It had changed little in the space of a decade. It still covered most of the two walls, and the eyepiece of its scanner glittered under amber fluorescence. Carmichael looked covetously at the eyepiece. It was window and doorway to a power beyond any man's dreams. Wealth beyond imagining lay just within that tiny opening. The rights over the life and death of every man alive. 
and nothing between that fabulous future and himself except the man who sat looking at the machine. Tally did not seem to hear the careful footsteps or the creak of the door behind him. He did not stare as Carmichael lifted the gun slowly. One might think that he never guessed what was coming, or why, or from whom, as Carmichael shot him through the head. Tally sighed and shivered a little, and twisted the scanner dial. It was not the first time that the eyepiece had shown him his own lifeless body, glimpsed down some vista of probability, but he never saw the slumping of that familiar figure without feeling a breath of indescribable coolness blow backward upon him out of the future. He straightened from the eyepiece and sat back in his chair looking thoughtfully at a pair of rough-soled shoes lying beside him on a table. He sat quietly for a while, his eyes upon the shoes, his mind following Carmichael down the street and into the evening and the morrow and on toward that coming crisis which would depend on his secure footing on a subway platform as a train thundered by the place where Carmichael would be standing one day next week. Tally had sent his messenger boy out this time for two pairs of shoes. He had hesitated long, an hour ago, between the rough-soled pair and the smooth, for Tally was a humane man, and there were many times when his job was distasteful to him, but in the end, this time, it had been the smooth-soled pair that he gave to Carmichael. Now he sighed and bent the scanner again, twisting the dial to bring into view a scene that he had watched before. Carmichael, standing on a crowded subway platform, glittering with oily wetness from some overflow. Carmichael in the slick-soled shoes Tally had chosen for him. A commotion in the crowd, a surge towards the platform edge, Carmichael's feet slipping frantically as the train roared by. Goodbye, Mr. Carmichael, Tally murmured. It was the farewell he had not spoken when Carmichael left the shop. He spoke it regretfully, and the regret was for the Carmichael of today, who did not yet deserve that end. He was not now a melodramatic villain whose death one could watch unmoved, but the Tin Carmichael of today had atonement to make for the Carmichael of ten years ahead, and the payment must be exacted. It's not a good thing to have the power of life and death over one's fellow humans. Peter Talley knew it was not a good thing, but the power had been put into his hands. He had not sought it. It seemed to him that the machine had grown almost by accident to its tremendous completion under his trained fingers and trained mind. At first it had puzzled him. How ought such a device to be used? What dangers, what terrible potentialities lay in the eye that could see through a veil of tomorrow? His was the responsibility, and it had weighed heavily upon him until the answer came. And after he knew the answer, well, the weight was heavier still, for Tally was a mild man. He could not have told anyone the real reason why he was a shopkeeper. Satisfaction, he'd said to Carmichael. And sometimes indeed there was a deep satisfaction, but at other times, at times like this, there was only dismay and humility, especially humility. We have what you need. Only Tally knew that message was not for the individuals who came to his shop. The pronoun was plural, not singular. It was a message for the world. The world whose future was being carefully, lovingly reshaped 
under Peter Talley's guidance. The main line of the future was not easy to alter. The future as a pyramid shaping slowly, brick by brick. And brick by brick, Talley had to change it. There were some men who were necessary, men who would create and build, men who should be saved. Tally gave them what they needed. But inevitably, there were others whose ends were evil. Tally gave them too what the world needed, death. Peter Tally had not asked for this terrible power, but the key had been put in his hands and he dared not delegate such authority as this to any other man alive. Sometimes he made mistakes. He had felt a little surer since the simile of the key had occurred to him, the key to the future, the key that had been laid in his hands. Remembering that, he leaned back in his chair and reached for an old and well-worn book. It fell open easily at a familiar passage. Peter Talley's lips moved as he read the passage once again in his room behind the shop on Park Avenue. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, I hope you didn't mind us veering from the plan again this week. I just thought, when I was doing my research to talk about what you need, it's, it's one of those episodes where there isn't that much in the way of trivia, so the main kind of point of interest was the original short story that it was based on and the fact that, yet again, Sailing has took elements of that and created something himself, you know, that's just touching on a couple of certain points in it, but in effect it's a quite different story, so so I thought, you know, I, I would read the story out, and I will be doing the regular episode this week too, time permitting, so uh, look for that over the next few days. So before I go, just a, just a little announcement about the website, thetwilightzonepodcast.com. If you go there now in the right-hand side, you will see the normal links to all the different podcasts, but you will also see a link to a Twilight Zone forum. Now, this isn't a forum that I've started. This is the actual official UK Twilight Zone forum because there's been some great news announced recently that here in the UK we are finally getting those Twilight Zone Blu-rays. There's also going to be a re-release of the DVDs as well, and also a re-release of the 80s series. So if you're looking on eBay and seeing the inflated prices that a lot of the Twilight Zone box sets go for nowadays, don't worry about it. Just hang fire for a little bit because those new editions are going to be coming out. So. So this is actually the the official UK forum for those releases. So if you go there, you'll be able to check out the release dates and so on. Uh, there'll be information on pricing. And basically, you've just got a nice blank forum there to talk about the Twilight Zone and so on. You don't have to be from the UK to go and enjoy it. But, um, you know, I've been posting there. We're trying to get trying to get things going a little bit so I hope that some of you will check it out and come and join us and hopefully down the line we might be able to review those new blu-ray editions on the podcast too so I do apologize to anyone in the states because you do already have those editions and um, but you know this is a big deal for us in the UK so I hope you will uh, 
so I hope you'll indulge us this, this once. So yeah, like I say, the link's there in the top right hand corner at the website, so go and check it out and uh, introduce yourself at the forum. Well that's all from me, and next time it will be our regularly scheduled program, What You Need. Thank you, bye bye.